Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, our distinguished group of panelists will address issues including the media's influence on shaping public perceptions of Islam and Muslims, the role policymakers can and should play in bridging the gap between Muslim and non-Muslim communities, and the role art and cultural institutions can play in shifting the narrative to a more inclusive and productive discussion. The event took place on October 20th, 2016. Welcome, everyone, and, and thank you for joining. I'm Fred Kemp. I'm president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. I'm delighted to have a packed house today, a great turnout for today's discussion on the widespread implication of is Islamophobia. Uh, what we want to do today is debunk myths and encourage a good conversation, much healthier conversation on this topic than we think is actually occurring at the time. It's a topic of crucial importance that has gathered significant attention in the United States and Europe and, and around the world. Enormous thanks to our partner in today event, today's event, Vuslat Doan Sabanchi, the Vice President of the Aden Doan Foundation and publisher of Hurriyet. Uh, I'll invite her to join me on stage in just a moment, but this is characteristic of the sort of uh, cutting edge work and thinking that you've done throughout your career. We have a first rate group of panelists comprised of leading experts on the subject Thank you all uh, for lending your time and expertise today to today's to discussion. I'll introduce them uh, later as we, uh, as we start the panel. And since social media plays a very important part in buttressing and dismantling racial and religious bias, I encourage you all to take this discussion to Twitter under the hashtag, uh, hashtag beyond Islamophobia. But let me... Uh, start by introducing Vuslat, who will be setting the tone for today's discussion. And it's important to note that this discussion uh, takes place uh, uh, just before the opening on Saturday of the Art of Quran exhibit at the Smithsonian, the Sackler Gallery. Last night there was a gala to open this, there was a special showing. Uh, the Doan Group is also sponsoring that exhibit, which very much fits into this whole uh, effort to debunk uh, the myths of Islamophobia. So uh, Vuslat is one of Turkey's most prominent media leaders as publisher of Hurriyet, as I said, Turkey's leading newspaper and vice president of the Aden Doan Foundation. Throughout her impressive career, she's advocated for societal change on a range of issues. From ending domestic violence, an issue on which she led a campaign that led to important legal reforms, to gender equality, a cause for which she championed a platform that nearly doubled the num number of women in the Turkish parliament in 2007. One of the greatest and, uh, testaments to the respected and trusted position that Vuslat holds in Turkey is the fact that it was through CNN Turk, one of the entities in the independent media conglomerate that she oversees, that President Erdogan delivered his FaceTime message to the public during the military coup earlier this year, spreading awareness and rallying the Turkish public at a moment of uh, severe threat to its democracy. Vuslat, you've been instrumental in carving out a space for issues that have gone under the radar and shifting the public perception and debate. It's been an honor to work with you so closely on this event, and I hope this is just the beginning of an effort uh, to, to take on this important subject. Vuslat, the floor is yours. 
Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. President Obama, in his latest speech at the United Nations, said, our, our, until basic questions are answered about how communities coexist, the embers of extremism will continue to burn, countless human beings will suffer, and the world is too small for us to simply be able to build a wall and prevent it from affecting our own societies. Yes, he is correct, the world is too small and the people's destinies are more interrelated to each other than it has ever been before. Uh, a threat here at this place uh, in, the, in the world is not only affecting these people, this place, but the entire globe. And we've seen this in global finance, we've seen this in public health, we've seen this also um, in many other cases, but we are recently experiencing it in refugee crisis, and terrorism. The wall that Obama is referring to has appeared in our lives very recently when the European countries started talking about to build up a wall to keep the threat of refugees away from them. This is going to take its place in the history as the most disgraceful human act. Unfortunately, terrorist organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so forth are um, are attacking to the world with terrorism, invoking the name of Islam. This is uh, a very big phenomena and it's a very uh, tragic issue for both Muslims and non-Muslims. Just to make it clear, unfortunately, the Muslims that are uh, that have been targeted to ISIS terrorism is much many more than the combination of Christians and Jews. So it's a global problem, not only the problem of the, of the Western world. I want to emphasize this. Well, what is this doing? This is, of course, promoting the Islamophobic sentiments within the Western world. <clears throat> and um, it also, uh, unfortunately, in return, is fueling the anti-Western sentiments within the Muslim countries. So it is really feeding each other. Uh, both diseases are feeding each other and causing a bigger and bigger problem for the world. It is also giving, Islamophobia is also giving a very good propaganda tool to the hands of the terrorists who are trying to recruit uh, the Muslim youth that are oppressed, that are isolated, and that are not able to be recognized. So this is um, another implication of Islamophobia. I want to uh, mention one more, I think, important conclusion of Islamophobia. It's unfortunately alienating the Muslims, the uh, people with the Muslim faith, and they are not being I shouldn't say they are not, but there is a possibility that they would not be so engaged with uh, being a good ally in acting against terrorism. So these are the all possible outcomes of Islamophobia. But how do we deal with it? What is Islamophobia? It stems from phobia, which is a, a fear of the unknown, right? If we put it so simply, then the answer is very simple. Let's get rid of the phobia. So, which is let's get to know each other. Let's try to find ways where we can engage in good conversations so that we can build a world where we can coexist together. Better conversations is important. I think it's crucial into 
getting to know each other because unfortunately we forgot having good conversations. When I say good conversations, I first mean good listening, which is actively listening, which is listening with the intention of understanding the other side, acknowledging and recognizing the other side. And it's also good talking. Talking not only to get your word across and to, to start a monologue, but also to invite in a conversation, in a dialogue, where you can search for answers for solutions of, of, the, of the problem. I think media can be a big facilitator in this. I think media has a huge role in this, in creating a language where, uh, where the world can start talking to, to each other rather than by uh, everybody engaging in a monologue. Freedom of thought and freedom of speech are fundamental human rights. They are a sine qua non of enlightenment and progress. And freedom of speech is the backbone of democracy. But it should not be exercised at the cost of attacking one's dignity. It should not be exercised at the cost of attacking one's faith either. Because you know what? Dignity is also a human right. I think, for example, when we talk about, um, especially in the terms of how do we cover Islam, what do we say and what do we don't say, we most of the time uh, find ourselves in the, tackled in the conversation of, so Muslims don't get, Christians don't get offended with this. How come the Muslims do? Well, they are because different, because they are different faiths. How, why don't we ask, um, questions like, so how, what does it make you feel? Or what is it that you really get offended? So that we can move beyond this conversation of and take the topic forward to find a conclusion. Uh, another very important uh, freedom is the freedom to ask questions. As a publisher, I truly very much appreciate uh, this, it's a, it's a treasure and we should vigorously defend it. But when we ask questions, do we always have to ask a question to verify the other side, the, our own presumptions? Do we always have to ask to get our own um, prejudgments or our own beliefs be verified? Uh, I think no. I think we can introduce a new language in journalism where we ask questions so that the other side is heard, so that the other side can express themselves better, so that the other side is, uh, can talk fearlessly in the field of respect and grace. We also, in, in, in media, defend freedom of speech for all costs. I think we should also start defending the right to be heard for everybody. Because if one is not heard, anger starts building up in there. And that anger, very, a lot of the time, can turn into radicalization and extremes. So this is also an important, an important aspect we should watch out when we're creating a new language. Well, these might seem theoretical, because we know that the, um, that the practical life, media is tough. We are facing a very tough competition. We run after best ratings, best page views, good circulation every minute, every day, every day. 
And we know that the best ratings goes to extreme rhetorics. We know that the loud voices and the radical voices get the best uh, attention. So what do we do? I propose that we put these on us on site and we also remember our moral obligation of our profession to the society. We can choose to be, as media, to be a channel of hatred and fear, which in a polarized world, unfortunately, it's also be pushing media to, to act in such way. But we can also choose to be a channel of wisdom, of reason, and of respect. And I think depending on which one we choose is going to have big consequences on the global peace and harmony. And this morning, here on this stage, I invite all my media colleagues to stop for one minute and think. Are we really going to follow this madness of constant stimulation of fear? Or are we going to promise our children for a life that is safer? Because this fear is threatening all of our safety. I think we can do this if we join forces for a better conversation around difficult point, uh, topics like Islamophobia. And Islamophobia is a very difficult topic. And today, I hope that this panel is going to be the first panel that's going to kick off the good conversation about Islamophobia. Uh, there is a beautiful uh, surah in the Quran which uh, defines this very simply, but very beautifully. Uh, Zura surah, it goes, listen closely to all voices and choose the best of it. Thank you very much for listening and contributing. So, uh, Vustat, thank you so much for those observations, and thank you for helping to make this happen. Uh, so, let me now welcome our panel uh, joining us today, um, and I'll start here uh, on, at the end is Vali Nasser, my good friend, the Dean of the Paul Nitsa School of, uh, of Advanced International Studies, better known as SICE, uh, at Johns Hopkins University. Vali is a well-renowned uh, scholar on the Middle East and also has experience in the public sector as special advisor to the president's uh, special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. He really is one of the great intellectual entrepreneurs uh, uh, in this town or any town. Um, uh, Zainab Salbi uh, is the host of the Zainab Salbi Project, a HuffPost original series. Her incredible work at the grassroots level uh, has earned her awards and recognition uh, from the World Economic Forum, uh, President Bill Clinton, and Time and Forbes magazines. Uh, I've got Karen Armstrong next on my list, so I'm going to go to you and then come back to you, Minister. <laughs> Karen Armstrong is an officer of the British Empire, well known for her exceptional work writing. Uh, is that right? Am I right? No, I, I, I have very few good words to say for the British Empire, so that's been rather, rather an embarrassment. But, but this is a, the, uh, is, is, an, is a reluctant officer of the British Empire. <laughs> uh, well known for her exceptional work writing and promoting literature on religion and fundamentalism. She's been a driver uh, of international action against extremism uh, through forging international intercultural and interreligious dialogue. 
Uh, she was instrumental in the creation of a charter for compassion, a document which urges the peoples and religions of the world to embrace the core value of compassion. Uh, and finally, and by no means least, um, uh, Minister Mehmet Aydin is a former Minister of State in the Turkish Council of Ministers and a former member of the Turkish Parliament, the Grand National Assembly of Turkey. He's also a well-published and well-known scholar and author on philosophy and religion. So thank you all thank you. for being here. Thank you. Um, so this is a crucial topic with vast implications uh, for domestic as well as foreign policy. It uh, divides countries, it divides societies, uh, divides communities, but it also has the power to bring them together. So I want to delve right into the discussion. Uh, in the past years, and particularly the past months, we've watched Europe struggle under the weight of over a million refugees fleeing conflict and economic distress and seeing politicians of both sides uh, of the Atlantic call for caps on refugee numbers and more strenuous vetting of refugees following uh, terrorist attacks across Europe. In the US, our, our, our election, I think it's fair to say, by and large, has provided more height, height, heat than light on this subject. And so we want to provide some light today. So against this backdrop, I'd like our experts to talk about how we can uh, walk the line between security concerns uh, and racism that may, in fact, create a spirit of exclusion and subsequent homegrown radicalization. There's just a lot at stake here. Uh, so I'm looking to, uh, uh, to uh, my, uh, my aides here because I think we've got a quick film that we're going to show. If it's not ready to show yet, okay, it's going to come a little bit later then. Um, what we're going to try to do is frame the subject. Uh, what is Islamophobia? What are the, rate, the, the sources of it? Where is it taking place? In what way is it taking place? Uh, and, uh, and then talk a little bit about the stakes and then finally try to outline, uh, outline uh, some solutions. Uh, I think we particularly want to focus in this conversation on the solutions. This is also interactive in the sense that you have our Twitter hashtag. Uh, you can then give us your ideas, your responses uh, to what we've said. We will have a Q&A period as well, but what you don't get in, you can send in in terms of ideas, particularly when it comes to uh, the potential of solutions. So uh, Karen, as uh, the uh, reluctant officer of the <laughs> British Empire, uh, maybe you can lay the groundwork for us to understand the extent of Islamophobia and its implications. Uh, you've said in the past that before 1700, and this is a quote, uh, religion permeated the whole of life so thoroughly that taking religion out of politics would be like extracting gin from gin and tonic. Um, <laughs> The, uh, even though some of us think that we may want to go on a 12-step program against Islamophobia. Uh, I wonder if you could, uh, you've written on the history of religious persecution of strife, so maybe you can give us sort of a context of where we are now. Well, we've suddenly moved. Um, it doesn't seem long ago, does it, before uh, when we were uh, cheering because the Berlin Wall was being torn down. And now there are, there's talk of new walls being erected and now people are cheering again. So something has shifted. And Islamophobia, what is it? Well, it is a phobia. Um, it is a, an irrational fear. It's not based on reason. Uh, it is based on a gut feeling. And it's, it's, it's one of those indications of people who are struggling in all kinds of fields of life 
with our globalization, the fact that we cannot live without one another. We are profoundly interconnected politically, environmentally, economically. When markets fall in one part of the world, they drop all around the world this day. And, and, and the more global we are, the more people in both religious and political terms are retreating into denominational or national ghettos. Um, and throughout history, I, I, I'm a historian, uh, and I often try to understand uh, how, things by seeing how they've been in the past. And there have been these explosions of hatred of certain groups. Uh, and just start think of the Crusades, for example. Uh, and what is, a, what is interesting is that these uh, phobias often project onto a so-called enemy uh, worry, buried worries about one's own position. The Crusaders, for example, who slaughtered Muslims with uh, great joy, uh, projected that most unchristian violence onto the, the other side, onto their enemies. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of that today. I know Valley's going to be talking about foreign policy, and that's a hugely important issue. Um, I'd just like to mention some of British foreign policy. I've mentioned the British Empire, enough said, uh, which we, I, we bear a, a considerable uh, responsibility for a lot of the problems in, in the region today. But also, cast your mind back to Paris in... Uh, January last year, and all those leaders marching together, shoulder to shoulder, linking arms for freedom of expression. When very many of those leaders, including my own Prime Minister, David Cameron, headed countries that had for decades, in the case of Britain, for over a century, uh, aggressively supported regimes in Muslim-majority countries that had denied their people any freedom of expression, and a sort of denial of that. Uh, and I think uh, we've got to look at, the, at this kind of denial, this kind of unhealthy, irrational uh, fear, because it's not something we can just sort out by telling people to uh, pull themselves together and look at the facts. Since you mentioned uh, the foreign policy in Bali, maybe you can step in here because obviously, obviously, this inter this is interwoven with 9/11. It's interwoven with uh, various foreign policy decisions that have been made. In some ways, one could even say it's a little surprising that Islamophobia is as high as it is. As I've read, it was 40% right after 9/11 in terms of uh, uh, the. Uh, feelings around Muslims, negative feelings around Muslims in the United States, and 60% or more now. But you would actually think under a president who has been uh, much more communicative to the is Islamic world, uh, his, his very famous Cairo speech, et cetera, that it wouldn't be that way. So I wonder if you can uh, give us a little bit of a feeling of, from your perspective as a uh, foreign policy practitioner, uh, where does this, how do you look at the uh, phenomena of Islamophobia? Uh, well, building on also what uh, Karen was saying, uh, you know, Islamophobia, even the term itself, burst on the stage right after 9-11. I think at that point we could have said it's uh, largely an issue that was external to the United States. Uh, uh, what's different from now 
is that uh, Islamophobia, in a way, was uh, an, a policy deliberately pushed from the very top of the U.S. administration. Mm -hmm. It was an idea that was part and parcel of, of the U.S. administration's way of managing its Middle East relations. I mean, the term Islamofascism, for instance, was coined and used by uh, President George Bush until he was dissuaded uh, from doing it. And, and the idea was essentially that 9-11 uh, um, uh, could, could have been construed as a challenge to U.S. policy in the Middle East, as a way of sidestepping, put, examining U.S. policy. Essentially, Islamophobia was a, was a way of passing the blame back to the Muslims, put Islam itself on trial and for its responsibility in promoting terrorism, rather than uh, uh, put U.S. foreign policy on trial for uh, creating some of the problems. And in fact, the big disconnect was that in the Muslim world, uh, the understanding of 9-11 was that this is about U.S. foreign policy, and in the U.S., the idea was that this is about Islam. And uh, the, this sort of, a, I would say, top-down push on, uh, uh, on, on making Islamophobia as the central focus of of understanding what happened after 9-11 very quickly found traction in the evangelical community in the United States. And I say that very deliberately because the evangelical community has very clear perceptions within its own understanding of faith and, and, and the end of times that very directly involves Islam as a competitor. And on the ground in missionary activity in Asia, in, in, in various parts of the world, in Africa, uh, Islam is the main competitor. So they have a very clear sense of Islam is the enemy. And it, but even among the evangelicals, Islamophobia was not about something that was a problem inside the United States. Islam was a problem that was outside the United States and was either in the form of terrorism or, or competition, was threatening the United States. I would say if you looked at President Obama's Cairo speech, I think, you know, Arabs and Muslims have criticized at many levels, but I think its, it's great success was that essentially it, he officially in Cairo, without saying so, abandoned Islamophobia as official American policy. I mean, that's, that, that's that is power, the significance. That's a powerful statement. That, that's, a, that's the significance of the Cairo speech. If he essentially said, this is about U.S. policy, and I'm going to put one U.S. policy on the table, which is called the Arab-Israeli peace process, building of settlements. I'm not going to do much about it, but I'm going to acknowledge that uh, the problem has to do with U.S. foreign policy. And as president of the United States, as the head of the U.S. government, I'm no longer going to follow this track. And you know, throughout, we can see that this is an administration in which the president doesn't want to use the term Islamic extremism whose Secretary of State prefers using the word Daesh to, to Islamic State, that uh, it has engaged the Muslim world in varieties, varieties of ways. And yet, as you say, we're back to where we were and worse. And I think that's partly because it's no longer a foreign policy issue. This is now about uh, other things that are happening in Europe and the United States. So it's about rise of populism. Populism, ultimately, it has economic roots, but it's about culture war. And, uh, and, and it goes to the issue of immigration. And immigration, very simply, is about two things, numbers and assimilation. And Muslims are a problem on both fronts. Their numbers are growing, particularly in Europe. So that puts them on the radar, and they do not assimilate. <coughs> or, or it appears that they don't assimilate or are slow to assimilate. So the, uh, the, the bikini-burkini debate of the summer is really about uh, uh, assimilation. So uh, you know, there's, there's a shift here. Uh, uh, this is not going to go away if ISIS is defeated. 
it's not going to go away with, with U.S. foreign policy. This is now morphed into, into the whole dynamic of, of, uh, of what's happening to American society itself, to populism, to, to, to uh, anger at outsiders. It has to do with what's happening uh, in Europe. Uh, of course, you know, refugees in Syria, beheadings in Iraq, uh, you know, th those things, bombs going off in, in Paris, Brussels, uh, merely add, uh, you know, fuel to the, to the fire. But, uh, but I think the challenge for Muslims is now much, much bigger because this is not about defending activities that are happening over there. It's about really defending their place in American society going, or European society going forward. The thing that's interesting, um, Vali, is there's been a, um, uh, a, a poll that showed that roughly half of U.S. Muslims, so 48%, said their own religious leaders haven't done, these are U.S. Muslims, have not done enough to speak out against extremists. Is this part of it? or? Well, you know, this is, I think, this, this idea that Muslim leaders have to speak about, uh, uh, I find that actually offensive. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the one point I, uh, of having heard everything else that Donald Trump <coughs> has said all along that I found particularly offensive was what he said in the last debate about mm -hmm. the, the burden mm -hmm. of finding out who, who, who is <laughs> planting a bomb rests on, on Muslims. This is uh, essentially is, 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 is collective guilt. All Muslims are guilty unless proven innocent. And the burden is on them to prove themselves innocent. Uh, and, and also the fact that uh, you know, somehow uh, if, if a preacher somewhere says something, uh, it, uh, it, um, it's sort of you, you count how many preachers have said something, although nobody looks at how many people have actually given fatwas. I think the Jordanian government came up with a doorstopper this size of the number of fatwas yes. that have been given. But it does raise one important problem, which is maybe Muslims are, are unique <coughs> as migrant communities in that we're not in control of those who interpret our faith, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they are sitting in, in Cairo and in Riyadh, and they have different worldviews and, and different priorities. But what a lot of Muslims say, speaking, is that why can't you see us in the diverse people that we are? We are 1.6 billion people. The fact that you keep on referring to us as one thing is, to start with, denying us the diversity of our identities beyond the nationalities, beyond the regions, beyond our professions, whether I'm a mother or an activist or an Iraqi or a Muslim or I am religious or not, it's complete generalization. So the first thing is we need to individualize the process and not generalize all Muslims. It's as bad as if I generalize all Christians as one thing. So that's number one. So the second thing is a lot of Muslims, you cannot generalize Muslims. Is, are we talking about the issue in America? And in America, there are also different kinds of Muslims. As an immigrant, my point of identity is very different than an American born and raised person. Their point of identity is American. And the decision-making reference that they are making, whether to wear a headscarf or not to wear a headscarf, is radically different in all the pillars and the foundation of my point of identity as someone who is born and raised in Iraq, Muslim-dominated country. So the points of identities is different also. Second, I did just a story on radicalization in France. Number one reason, actually, how these radicalized groups are being recruited 
is not the mosques. As a matter of fact, most of the mosques, the imams are just speaking the formal speech. You know, do good, be well, da da da, all the basic tenets of every other religion, do good. It's actually the internet. And so it's mostly 90% or so is being recruited on internet or informal gatherings. So that's the third thing. Many Muslims are feeling, in both in America or in Europe, and in the Middle East, it's very different in how they're feeling. In the Middle East, I, I was in Iraq three weeks ago, and they see ISIS and they see all of that as they actually, all what they care about is this is against Islam. Because they're introducing a new uh, terminologies, a new descriptions of Islam that is alien to Muslims themselves. You know, it's like me saying the KKK is defining all of Christianity, which is incorrect. That's how Muslims are feeling. So they're not, in, in the Middle East, in Iraq, they don't, even, they don't even know what's happening in America. They just know they're against us. ISIS is against us as Muslims. But Muslims in here and in France, they are actually, I mean, my finding in my, uh, just it shows in, in all of these issues, they are hurt and they are scared. And the ones who are sort of holding that tension is women, and it's women who are wearing headscarf. And I want to like sort of, people are, it's not, this is for me not even policy or theoretical discussions. This is normal people on a day-to-day -day level you encounter and I'm encountering who keep on presuming negativity about your, ba an aspect of your basic identity. It's like, you know, I feel as a Muslim woman, no matter how much I talk about how I grew up, my upbringing, my philosophy, that I am still asked what I perceived as hurtful and insulting and prejudiced questions about my background. No matter how much I say what I have done in my life, I'm minimized. So were you oppressed as a Muslim woman? So, so, see, this to me is a really important point for the audience and for us, which is who is suffering from Islamophobia. Uh, and, uh, and what you're bringing out here is, uh, if I'm reading you correctly, women, and particularly women who wear headscarves. So the, 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 the victims of Islamophobia um, uh, uh, are first and foremost this group. And, and again, as you look at the uh, 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, only 300 million of whom are in the Middle East, by the way, uh, 220 uh, uh, million in, in um, uh, Indonesia. So, so uh, is that what you're saying? That this is the, the who, are, who, who are those who suffer most from Islamophobia? In the Western world, the ones who are suffering the most, in my opinion, are women who are wearing headscarf because mm -hmm. they are symbolic, they are physically different. So the assumption about Islamophobia, people are afraid. If you ask people, what are you afraid of? Mm -hmm. On an uh, average level, they're afraid that Muslims are going to impose Sharia on America or in France or whatever. So when then you go back to the Muslims, I was like, do you have intention of imposing Sharia? And they're like, no, we came to this country because we like the constitution. So why, can, why do you assume? And many Muslims don't know what Sharia is, just so we get that out of the way, actually. It's like not something you grow up thinking about it. Second, people assume Muslim women are oppressed. That's a very mainstream assumption. But then, <laughs> So the Muslim women who are physical are the ones who are wearing hezka because it's a physical reminder of difference. But then what they are doing is that they are oppressing these very women by prejudice and acts of prejudice and violence. 
social media violence, trying to harass them, throwing beer on them, like violence is happening in cities like in, in, in states like Minnesota and other places. And so what, what's happening is sort of a reaction. These Muslim women are saying, no, I'm going to do it to prove that I am not an oppressed woman. Mm. I'm choosing this. But then they're also afraid. So there is a retraction of the community at large of saying, we're scared. We're scared. In France, Muslims are scared to say, I pray. Muslims are afraid to say, I don't eat pork. Because if they say that, they're going to be assumed as they are radicalized. Okay. They're right to yep. be afraid. Uh, because, again, if you look at history, when these uh, phobias uh, blow up, they've often been succeeded by appalling actions. Mm. Um, I, I didn't get into all this because I'm filled with peace and love and compassion. And, and I, I got into it because I felt a sense of dread. And it began with the Salman Rushdie crisis. Mm. I deplored the fatwa, uh, but... I was off appalled by the way British intellectuals, the great and the good, uh, segued from a denunciation of the fatwa to an out-and-out -out denunciation of Islam itself. And I said to myself, we've learned nothing in Europe since the 1930s. It was precisely this kind of talk uh, where you siphon off uh, one person and, and, and miniaturize their identity in the way that you've described that made Hitler, it possible to, for Hitler to do what he did. And uh, it was at the end of that decade, there were concentration camps again on the outskirts of Europe, this time with Mus Muslims in them. Mm -hmm. And if, if these kind of catastrophes can happen in places like Germany, which was the most enlightened and civilized country in Europe, a leading player in the Enlightenment, uh, in Yugoslavia, as we used to call it, which, where Muslims, Jews, and Christians had coexisted amicably for centuries, when none of us can say this can't happen here. And so we should be, they, they are right to be afraid. Um, and I think we should all be afraid lest we lose our Western soul by giving in to these, all the things that we value and that are celebrated in this city with all your shrines. It's like a holy city of, 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 pres of great presidents and their scriptures, their, their words behind them, speaking about equality, uh, toleration, mm -hmm. uh, pluralism. Now, none of us have held to those. The British Empire certainly didn't hold to any of those. Uh, and and we, America's had its problems too. But nevertheless, that vision is precious and has never been more important now. And I fear, uh, too, that we, we, we are in danger of losing our soul, losing our Western soul and values. Thank you. Minister Aydin, um, uh, you sort of wear a couple of hats coming to this issue. One of them is having explored the interactions of religion and politics as a theoretical uh, uh, person, professor of ethics, policy, and religion, but also as a practical person, as a Turkish minister of state. So uh, give us your thoughts from what you've heard thus far, and perhaps also talk about whether this theme uh, plays a role in any way in Turkey's role in Europe and interactions with its European neighbors. I think, again, you have to start with the concept itself. I think it really requires a kind of analysis. Mm. So it is a multidimensional concept to begin with. The term is new, perhaps, Islamophobia. It has just one 
100 years or so, at the beginning of the 20th century, a Frenchman wrote a book called L'Orient de Vue, L'Occident. So it was the, the view in light of the West, East in light of the West. And, but it became fairly well known after the publication of a report by Runnymede Foundation or Trust, which had the title Islamophobia, a challenge for us all. Now it has become more challenging, as a matter of fact. So it has a multidimensional concept to begin with. It has a psychological dimension. The verb phobia comes from this dimension of the concept. And secondly, of course, it grows, it deepens in social life. So it has a social dimension. And as a friend said, it has also a visible political dimension. So we are face to face nowadays with the politics of Islamophobia. And this is not just one form, this is not one simple thing. It is a complicated predicament, which really before us and it requires addressing and it requires to do something. So to begin with, of course, the term phobia was a little bit problematic. Some people didn't want to use the word phobia because uh, a friend of mine says that Islamophobia was there long before the term was invented. So the, the, the idea, the thought is as long as the Christian-Muslim relationship. So it goes back to the early days of Islam, because Islam was also challenging Christianity, Trinity, for example, and so on. But it grew during the Middle Ages, when you had Christendom. Nowadays, you don't really talk about Christendom. But in those days, of course, there was Muslim world and was Christendom. So the roots, the basic roots, go back to those days. So it is really a powerful stream coming from history, to our days. And about 10 years ago, for example, I had the chance to uh, listen to the politicians in all European, Central European countries. The politics of Istavovia was a kind of weak idea rather than a strong political uh, attitude or political idea. But now it has become a, a very serious uh, political uh, activity. And it's really a good benefit, in a way, for politicians. Even, for example, uh, the, the United States were a little bit quiet in terms of Islamophobia. It has become, in the last election, it has become a very important topic in political life as well. So, in a way, uh, Islamophobia requires immediate addressing, immediate struggle in order to make it not epidemic. It was endemic in the European psyche, nevertheless. Now it has become a kind of epidemic. Uh, it is going to affect all of us, not only the Muslims, but all of us, every part of the world. What can we do to begin with? First, we have to have a good edu intercultural education. With that, because some of the Islamophobic actions are due to something which is consciously done. So they are, they are done willingly and knowingly, but some of them comes out, out of ignorance. They didn't know anything about Islam, but they, they talk about Islamophobia, for example. Or they say quite nasty things about, about Islam itself. So in a way, education is extremely important in the short line and in the long line as well. And secondly, of course, 
we have to be very careful when we try to criticize religions, because religion may not be very important in one country. For example, uh, saying nasty things about prophet may not be very uh, important in this part of the world. And I'm not, I don't mean in this part, this part in America, yeah. but in any part of the world. But if it is important in some other parts, so we've got to be very, very careful. As humans, we have to respect the values of other cultures, of, of other civilizations. Secondly, I think uh, extremism in the life of culture, in other words, culturalism is, is very strong in the West. And this culturalism is the mother of, at least, is the mother and the father of Islamophobia as well. Because if you say that the Western culture, the Western civilization is the culture and the civilization, you are really saying quite a lot of, apart from description, apart from, you are not, you are not only using a descriptive statement, you are using a dogmatic, in a way, a, narrative, a, a, a normative statement as well. So, for example, uh, Huntington wrote quite a lot. And once, at least, he said a very important thing. He said that this Western uh, idea of superiority is not scientific, is not moral, and it is dangerous. If you say there is only one important civilization in the world, this is really against our scientific outlook. We know there are plenty of things. So, in a way, he says, you know, we have an assumption. Now, I'm almost quoting. You know, we have an assumption. We think that everyone is like us. If, if they are not like us, they want to be like us. If they don't want to be like us, then they have to be either persuaded to be like us or forced to be like us. And this is not just an assumption. Mm -hmm. This is something that we do quite a lot of things in the whole world. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an idea. Mm -hmm. It's an idea with which they do quite a lot of things. And he says this is A, not scientific, B, not moral, and C, not the, thir the third one, dangerous. Mm. It was also dangerous. Mm. Scientific, as I said, because mm. plurality is with us. Yeah. Minister Aden, you, you've helped us turn the corner yes. to solutions. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and provocatively turn the corner to solutions. So intercultural education, respecting the value of other uh, cultures uh, questioning the Western idea of, uh, uh, or the Western uh, projection of uh, superiority in a way that feeds this. Uh, so, uh, Vuslat, and then let's make this a conversation of the panel about throwing out some ideas for specific solutions. How does one ad address this phenomena? And then, and then we'll turn to the audience, and maybe Vuslat, you can kick us off, and, and then uh, just really jump in wherever you'd mm -hmm. like to in this round, please. I think I really do passionately care about the lang language and how we talk about it because it really affects our belief system as well. So what um, uh, Mr. Iden, Minister Iden was telling about the belief system, it's, it's, it starts from a belief system that uh, you know, we are superior. But if we put that on site, we do have other belief systems in our language which we take it for granted. Uh, so I think changing the language is extremely important. Yes. How do we really sincerely, without fear, talk about Islam? Not with a, with a prejudgment, not to confirm or verify our assumptions, already pre-assumptions, but without any guards, how do we open up the subject? 
I think you said something very important in your opening speech about the, uh, the nature of dialogue, really. Yes. Uh, we, we, dialogue's one of these buzzwords, you know, if only we can engage in dialogue, peace will break out. But as we've been seeing uh, in recent pe presidential debates, uh, there's very little Socratic dialogue going on. Socrates, the founder of the Western mm. rational tradition. When people came to talk to Socrates, they usually thought they knew what they were talking about. But after um, half an hour of his relentless questioning, they found they didn't know the first thing about such crucial matters as goodness or justice. And at that point, and they said, we, now we have to go back to school. We, we, we know nothing. It's up. And Socrates said, at that point, you've become a philosopher. Um, you know you know nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And from that, uh, we are a very omniscient society. Um, we, uh, we, we, every, everybody has suddenly become an expert on the Quran. Uh, they've read it, they've read some article or something, and they know we've got to dismantle, because sometimes what the, the things they say are really embarrassing to listen to, the depth of ignorance that is, that is involved, uh, to dismantle our sense, uh, as you said, Minister of Superiority, of realizing how little we know, then we're open uh, to, 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 uh, to other views. To other, to, yeah, and let them, in, let, them set, let them shake our certainties. Mm. Yeah. That value. And then Zeno. Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, we have to have patience. This is not something no. that with one or two things or one or two uh, um, uh, clarification is, is going to go away, particularly because I think Muslims are now woven into larger political dynamics that's going on in, in, in Europe and the U.S. Uh, and education, I think, uh, has to be much broader. Uh, so yes. It's not just education about Islam itself and what the Quran says, but it's also education really about Muslims. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, Zainab's point is very important. It's not, it's, there's a great deal of diversity even within the community in the U.S. ethnically. Uh, um, uh, you know, it reminds me years ago that when after 9-11, uh, when I lived in California, the largest objection that the Iranian-American community had was to be counted as Muslims and, and uh, <laughs> be put on there when the axis of evil happened. They just didn't want to be put on that, in that box. They, their ethnicity mattered more to them than, than uh, Islamic filiality. I think, you know, uh, uh, showing the diversity of Muslim culture, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the art of the Quran exhibit yes. that, uh, you know, Dogan, uh, foundation group has sponsored. I think those are very important to show that Muslims are not unidimensional. But I think more than that, we sort of also have to separate what is uh, Islamophobia and what is Muslim phobia, which is uh, um, uh, it's not just about the opinion about what the Quran says or what these people believe, but it's a, it's it's actually uh, I think a great deal of uh, problem exists on everyday basis, even beyond women who wear hijab with all the young Muslims who are moving up into businesses, into, into uh, um, government, into, the, into various sectors. I think the everyday prejudice that they feel or they face is not just about what's in the holy book or what's not. It's about them as people, where they come from, what their everyday aspirations are. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's, uh, that's not something that you necessarily can address uh, in books, it, it requires a lot more uh, engagement that, that has to happen. I think the, the solution actually really, in my opinion, rests in the young Muslim population in the West. It's not in academia, it's not in universities. We can pontificate about this, 
but frontline soldiers or those who on university campuses are going to be rooming with somebody, are going to be going to class with people. I mean, the burden really falls on them, and they're the ones who also are feeling this, uh, this most. Um, but I, I'm not actually very optimistic in the short run. I, I think we're in a dark period. And, because? Uh, because uh, we, we now have, it's no longer about terrorism or 9-11 or foreign policy. We've become uh, sort of unwittingly entangled into some nasty big forces that are going through American politics and society. We're the other, we part of the immigration problem. We're embedded in the culture war. Uh, Muslims will have it much more difficult ultimately than Mexicans. I mean, after all, they're Catholic, <coughs> the part of the Western civilization. We're not. And, and, uh, and I don't think Muslims saw this coming, and they don't have easy strategies to how they disentangle themselves from this populist wave that is sweeping across uh, Europe and, and, and the US. And it's going to take time for them to uh, find, find their, fo their footing. I mean, what I would say is that it's very important that we're thinking about this. But I also don't think that there is easy, easy solutions. I mean, I think one of the most depressing thing is that you know, having a, a president that was sympathetic to this issue and his own middle name you know, had connotations actually provoked worse reactions. In but the actually, end, discourse again, I think discourse is important without yeah, really yeah. changing our discourse. Mm. Islamophobic discourse distracts, practically destroys everything. Now, it is not possible to have a reasonable uh, dialogue of cultures. It's not, it's not possible really to have a rational uh, diplomacy, cultural mm -hmm. diplomacy. Why? Because the, the, the discourse itself is very dirty. Mm -hmm. the, 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 it, it has enormous existential problems. So we, I think we should, we should start really from correcting our language, correcting our terminology, correcting our, because that really goes directly from one, my mouth to the heart of other people. I, I, look, I think these are important points. I know Zainab comes in, then Karen, the, the, you've got the politics of Islamophobia that you're talking about, and then this interesting notion that it could be Muslimphobia instead of Islamophobia. The fact that this will go on for a while and could get worse before it gets better, which I think is all the more reason for what we're doing today and the Art of the Quran exhibit and the efforts that one needs to take on. <coughs> Zainab, what, what is uh, your? Well, I just came. I just interviewed families in France whose sons have been recruited by ISIS, French Muslims. And when the families were talking over Skype with their sons, who is in ISIS territories, and saying, come back to France, these are four-generation French Muslims. The grandfather fought in World War II against the Nazis with the French army. And the son says, quote, all the times in which he has been discriminated against based on his color and his name. In the mall, people thought that he's stealing. In the school, all the bullying, all the things that he has gone through, which is uh, an expression of Islamophobia, if you may. And he says, what's the point? No matter what I do, how much I try to prove that I am French, they are never accepting me for who I am. So these actions for me, and it is everyone in the panel mm -hmm. said it, they have a reaction <laughs> and they and we are all part of it. This is not some extreme group of people who are doing the discrimination. This is all of us, actually, who are doing it in nuanced and subtle ways. There are groups who are trying to do something about it. They are, for example, the Methodist Church in Minnesota, 
is trying to have dialogues between Muslims and non-Muslims, and they're hosting it in the churches. And the pastors, I interviewed the pastors, he said, I am part of the problem because I did assumed things about Islam, and I may have contributed to Islamophobia, willingly or not willingly, with my ignorance and assumptions. So we need to know that this is, we are all part of this, and there are some actions of having these dialogues to demystify and to have a safe place to ask the questions. Third, there are also some Muslim communities who are opening and demystifying the mosque because the mosque also people are afraid of it. There's highest wave of attacks in, against mosque in this country than ever before. Or city councils refusing a small mosque to be built in their communities. And so partially the Muslim community also need to demystify what goes on in the mosque. Let's open up the mosque. Let's see, there's nothing happening in here. This is what's going on. And I think Muslims at large, and I am generalizing all Muslims in this moment, need to also co-own this issue. This is not about us and them, and we are stuck in this dynamic of us and them. And, within it, and, and we need to own it, whether, whatever kind of Muslim one may be. Because some Muslims are religious, some are practicing, some are secular, some are not. At the end, it's seen as a collective. So all of us need to co-own this issue mm -hmm. as well and redefine it rather than say, well, I'm a secular Muslim, I have nothing to do with it. No, we actually are all doomed and are part of this issue and crisis, I would say. And so we need to co-own it and, and that means us speaking up more and us taking more actions in defining what are we seeing of Islam. So these are some thank, thank suggestions. Thank you. Karen, and then we'll go to the audience. I agree Please. with you, Valley, that I don't see any quick solution to this, and that, that there is a dark period, but we still have to do what we can against yes, the yes. encroaching darkness. And you, you gave me the, uh, all these initiatives are going on. I think we've got to start joining up some of these initiatives. So good work being done here, there, and everywhere. And, and you know, in dark old Europe, too, uh, where things are happening. Let's join up these so that it becomes more of a movement. And I think, too, we need to step outside the box and try and think of more imaginative ways of dealing with this. You know, I write these books, but it's a bit old-fashioned, really. Um, we, we love your books. Please keep writing them. No, they're brilliant. But, uh, you see, and here I think the young, uh, you, you mentioned, you see, I never thought I'd hear myself say the following words, but I really like what the Pope is doing at the moment. Um, you know, the, um, Do you want to share your former uh, the, profession? With the... <laughs> well, yes, I can say that when I was a nun, no one ever told me to take off my veil um, or, or my habit. It was far yeah. more cumbersome than any, yeah. any hijab that I've ever seen. Uh, but uh, the... But what he is doing, and he does write encyclicals, but in, he does make a gesture. And this is a, a world of pictures and images, everyone taking photographs. Uh, the young can do this. You take a, 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 pic, a picture, an image, it goes around social media immediately, and it can shift uh, you know, things, attitudes much more uh, basically than a learned article, for example. And I think here the young can help us because this is very much their culture um, and that we need somehow to think of new ways of, 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 of attacking this because, uh, or dealing with this, attacking is the wrong word, dealing with this problem um, it, before we're overwhelmed by sorrow. I'm going to go to the audience unless there's a quick further intervention here. Great. 
please, I see someone here and here. Please, thank you. If you could identify yourself and to whom you'd like to address the question. Uh, I'm Manaz Afghami. Uh, wonderful conversation. I would like to address my question to Vali. Uh, one is uh, the impact of this Islamophobia uh, on Muslim societies themselves in the sense that we all need to question ourselves and we all need to uh, question our system of practices, uh, practicing our own religions. We are a little bit behind in the Muslim majority countries. And what kind of an impact does, does this phobia have on Muslim majority societies <coughs> rethinking and moving forward with our own practices. And could you please also relate that to the, to the backward progress of secularism? Because freedom of religion basically everywhere and in a more and more diverse society uh, really can only be, uh, uh, you, know, ha you know, comfortably uh, practiced and people can comfortably live together if we have secularism, that the religion is uh, our, our part of one, uh, one part of our life and governance is another, and that we should be secular, not atheist, but secular if we want to have that kind of diversity and live with it. Vali, well, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, good questions. I mean, to uh, Zainab's point, uh, th there is an issue of diversity here. So not all Muslim societies are either engaged in this conversation or are reacting to it in the same way. I mean, partly I think the disconnect is that in most of the Muslim world, the perception is that the problem is not with Islam or culture. The problem is with, with uh, foreign policy. And also they don't suffer or encounter in a major way what Zainab very powerfully described on everyday uh, challenges to identity, uh, you know, average Muslims in Cairo or, or, or Lahore are, are not confronted with, uh, with the kind of prejudices or challenges uh, to, their, to their religion. Um, so I, I, th I don't think, you know, the, 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 the debate is impacting on the ground the way it impacts, uh, you know, Muslims uh, in the West. And as a result also, I think the, the larger intellectual voices in the Muslim world that could be transiting, whether it's al-Azhar or, or, or important uh, intellectual voices, are not quite as engaged in this conversation as they should be. And that, that's one of the reasons why this is not moving as, as quickly uh, as we think. It's easy to give a fatwa against uh, terrorism in, in Amman, but I don't see the clerics sort of driven by trying to resolve the problems of fasting you know, uh, in the middle of summer in, in Minnesota, or, or, or are you allowed to, you know, uh, do certain things to accommodate uh, workplace uh, uh, pressures uh, going on? Secondly, I think, you know, uh, in the Muslim world, uh, you know, there is, there is a dominant view that the West is the colonial power. Colonialism really hasn't ended. And, uh, and, the, and the last way in which you can get uh, populations outside of the United States to do something is if, it, if you direct them to do it that the dynamic is, and I think that was a mistake the Bush administration they, they made, that if you exhort people to modernize, they will oblige and, 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 and accommodate you. Uh, as Zainab said, actually, it, it actually encourages resistance. Uh, many of the youth are opting out. I think the problem of secularism is that, um, you know, a lot of times we, we have this debate in, in a vacuum. The main problem of secularism, it has, it has failed in every account. It has failed on economic development. It has failed in social development. And most importantly, it has failed in the one thing that matters to Muslims, 
which is to give them dignity and power on the world stage. So I think that you know, the secularism's fate was, I think, sealed when in 1967 <laughs> it was beaten to a pulp by a, by a small country that was built in the name of, of, of religion. I mean, one of the things that attracts a lot of the youth who ultimately go to Syria, I mean, uh, some people convert to extremism, join terrorism. Some people convert to extremism after they decide they want to join ex uh, terrorism. Is actually the promise of ISIS was promise of empowerment. It was not a promise of paradise, et cetera, that brought people. Is that this is the first force that actually is defeating governments on the ground, capturing cities, is defeating the US, beheadings, are not so much a scriptural exercise as is an exercise of power. And that is appealing at a gut level, particularly to the, exactly to the young man who's humiliated day in, day out uh, on an everyday basis. And until secularism comes up with an answer to that, unless it wins a single battle on the battlefield, it gets a single concession that is meaningful to Muslims, uh, you know, there's no reason why you become secular, in a at least that it would become a major movement in a vacuum. I think, you, I I think you've provoked a couple of uh, responses here. Yeah, I just, please. I, I want to add one more point about, mm -hmm. in France, for example, and I, this is, I'm talking about French secularism, a lot of people believe that the extremism of secularism in France is leading to some of this crisis. And the Burkini is part, is a manifestation of that. What, when you ask French Muslims and they said, we do want to revive, you know, to be accepted as we are. And in secularism, there's a rigidity in France, which is different than in other countries. Rigidity about the definition of it. You're either like this or that. I think mm -hmm. what we all need the issue is how do we have, how can we develop an acceptance in the Muslim country. So this is a French issue, which is, I think they are being forced yeah. to re-examine the meaning of secularism in their society. But in Muslim societies, how can we, both sides, the secular as well as the religious, sort of maybe these are two paradigms that are too um, extreme. And then what we are moving towards in a very painful time right now throughout the region is sort of more fluidity, perhaps, of identities rather than as rigid identities. And acceptance on all sides that I can be all of that and it's okay. We have a lot of yes, questions right. in the audience, so let me, let, let me go with questions. I see one here. The, you've been, had your hand up right from the beginning. And then uh, my colleague uh, there in the back and left. My name is Azar Nafisi. I'm a writer. Um, Thank you very much for a very thought-provoking and intriguing uh, conversation. Uh, one of the things that uh, I uh, came across when I came back to U.S. in 1997, um, I left it in 1979, was that all the countries that had their unique names, um, like Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Indonesia, which were so different culturally and historically, were now reduced to, to one aspect, which was religion. And so we would call them now Muslim world. And that religion, which had so many different interpretations, was also reduced to one aspect, uh, which was extremism. Uh, so um, I'm very glad that you brought up the point that there are ma as many interpretations of Islam as there are uh, Muslims. Uh, in this world. Don't you think that it's about time we really did away uh, with the word Muslim world? I mean, what does that mean? Um, uh, Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Sarah Palin are 
all Christians, um, which one is more Christian? Uh, so my grandmother never took off her veil. My mother never wore the veil. They were both, which, who is to say which one is more? So one criticism that I have of media, and I would like to see how you feel about it, is that we are now re reduced to that one aspect. So when people look at me and they see me criticizing the Islamic Republic of Iran and imposing one image, one interpretation of history, culture, people upon the whole society, they tell me, you are Western. Uh, so how do we deal with that? Is it not time to talk about differences in the light of similarities that we're all human beings, that the mother in Iraq whose son is killed feels the same way as the mother uh, in, in America. Who, and, and so that is, do we not want life, liberty, who, who and pursuit like of happiness? Who would you like to comment on that? Pardon me? Who would you like to answer that question? I think that yeah. uh, I would Let's like just to take, leave it to who, the, Would you like to, to take a shot at that and, and then we'll go to the back? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I take your point. I think it's a very strong and valid comment that, uh, yes, Muslim world is just um, being put into just one definition, and whereas it's completely uh, very different within Muslim and within nationalities, very, very different identities. And it's, it's important to recognize it. I, I mean, I take your point, and I agree. I want to make it. I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. No, no, I, I'm going to change and ask you a question, but yeah. so I let this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would just say very quickly <coughs> that, that among practicing Muslims, there is this uh, sense of belonging to, to a community. But, but I do think <coughs> you're, you're right in the sense that, particularly, Westerners looking at the Muslim world have lost the balance in terms of how you look at this. There has to be a balance in the middle between uh, understanding that there's something that, uh, in terms of the book, uh, you know, prayers, practice, that con con connects somebody who's in Indonesia to somebody who is in, who is in Turkey or in, in Nigeria, but that these differences are real. Actually, this sense of belonging to one community internally has hurt the Muslim world. Uh, in, in and, uh, uh, you know, many practices, the diversity, say, in, in practice between many regions has begun to erode in, the, in, in favor of a single orthodoxy. But, but you're right. I mean, I think everything, everything in, a, in, in moderation and in balance, and, and that's a balance that not only the Muslim world itself has to discover, but also it's a balance that in, in looking at the Muslim world we have to observe. So, well, the way I'm going to yeah. see is that the, Europe is the same. For example, what is European? Who is European? What is Europe? There are different answers. There are secular and uh, scientific Europe. There is Christian Europe. There is Catholic Europe. Sometimes they say, well, Europe has lost its soul because it has lost the creed that was preached by uh, Catholicism. So I don't think we can get rid of the Muslim world, but we have to be conscious about diversity, about mm -hmm. plurality, and also we have to do something in terms of pluralism. Yeah. Plurality is a, is, a psycho, is a social phenomena, but we have to do something about in terms of politics. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're running out of time, so let me, t let me pick up two questions in the back here and to the side here. I'm sorry, I know there's so many people that wanted to ask mm -hmm. questions beyond, and then we'll come back to the panel for a, a, a quick uh, one minute of each to close. Please. Uh, thank you. This is really um, thought-provoking. Um, <coughs> as someone who has a very jaundiced view of all religions, including Islam, let me say the following. 
people were complaining that the West sees itself as superior to Islam. All, every religion sees itself as superior to the previous religions, including Islam. The Jews have the Jews and the Goyim. The Greeks have the Greeks and the barbarians. The Chinese and, and the rest. The Indians and the unpure. Uh, the Muslims, we are the best nation that, 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 that came into being. There's a, there's a you know, this, this, is, this is as Islamic as everything else. That's one. And the other thing is, we cannot talk about Islamophobia or Western hostility to Islam in terms of the sacred religious text. That's really insignificant because the same sacred religious text is, is susceptible to all sorts of interpretations. We all know that. That's specifically true about the Old Testament and the Quran. These are articles of people in certain periods of time. And what, what, what is in the, Bible, in, the, in the Old Testament and, and the Quran has been susceptible to all sorts of interpretation. I can justify anything by quoting the Old, the Old I, Testament. I and because of shortness of time. I, I know, I know, but, but yeah. The point, so we have to talk about Islamophobia and the context of the historic legacies of the conflict between the Arab world and the Near East and the West. Mm -hmm. The invasions of Spain, the, inv the Crusades and all that. One final thing, for the Arabs, I think what we have here is an Arab problem more than a Muslim problem. All the theoreticians of the radical Islamist groups in the 20th century were Arabs. Okay? They were not from uh, Indonesia or Malaysia or Nigeria. <laughs> All right? From, from, from Sayyid Qutb to Osama bin Laden to Zawahiri to all of these things. And as long as you have a broken Arab world, you're going to have this problem. The problem of, of radicalism and terrorism in Europe. You don't find too many Turks who are involved in this. What happened? So my words are that toxic? <laughs> All right. Yeah, play, play, please. Let, let's let's take the last okay, question. Okay, fine. Play, thank you. Uh, last May question I just here. Jump in here. Well, let's have one question, then we'll come back to the final round. Okay, uh, my name is Shebnam Kalemni uh, Özcan. Uh, I'm a Moscovitz Chair Professor of Economics at University of Maryland College Park. Um, great panel. I would like to uh, say something uh, which uh, will show my, um, you know, very strict disagreement with Mr. Nassar, and then we'll ask a question to all the panel members. And again, I'm an economist, so bear that in mind. I don't think um, this is something that we can call secularism is, you know, this is secularism failure. I'm from Turkey. I came to this country 20 years ago. Uh, I grew up in a secular country, and I never felt oppressed or anything because I'm not eating pork or I'm a practicing Muslim that I'm oppressed in this country. So America is actually very different than Europe in that sense. And uh, I was very well educated. I kept being educated, and then I, you know, uh, came to a high point in this country because of the way I think this country, the United States of America, works, which has a very secular education. So. The failure is the politicians' failure to respond to globalization. Ms. Armstrong said that at the beginning. So this is about globalization, globalization of economy, globalization of capital markets, globalization of labor markets, and the winners and losers out of that. And for politicians, it is so easy to use Islamophobia, so easy to use many of these things to win the walls of those losers. So this is about the failing of the politicians and the policies toward that phenomena that we went through the last 10, 20 years. 
years, right? So in that sense, it is not, uh, I believe, the, the failure of the secularism or secular uh, anything. In fact, this country, the public education system is a very secular one in the United States of America, and we all know the ones who are educating their children in this country that it is very multicultural, as Mr. Aydin was saying, which is one of the solutions. And I believe, you know, this panel is about the solution, but none of you really said anything about the solution. It is definitely about education, but what type of education? Not only intercultural and multicultural, but also about secular education. Secularism definition is about, you know, not having religion in politics and in education, not Burkini. Burkini is, I fully agree with Zainab, you know, you cannot, you know, uh, interfere with how people dress and how people worship and how people pray. But it should definitely be the case that religion has no place in politics and in education. If you do that, which is pretty much what this country does, I think this problem can be easily solved. Again, you know, this has to be taught in the context of the politicians and policies failure as a response to accommodate the loser from the globalization. So my question to you is how uh, you, your views in terms of how can you separate the failure to respond to globalization from what we just easily call this is the failure of secularism. Again, secularism defined not about Burkinis, but about religion not being in politics. So, so uh, as, I, as I think we can see through this discussion, uh, not only is this conversation needed, but there are a lot of people in the audience hungry for the conversation. And, and so we are really at the end of time of this panel, not the end of time in general. And I just want to go down uh, the panel uh, from my left uh, and ending with Vuslat. Uh, one minute or less for any final observation you'd like to make. Mm-hmm. Um, Amartya Sen wrote a book about violence, and he talked about miniaturization of identity. And I think that's what's been coming up all over the place. Once you miniaturize an identity, you are, it's possible to attack it. Uh, because we are dealing with complexity here. Um, and religion, as, I, as you pointed out, that I've said earlier in my books, that religion permeated all activities. It wasn't something... Uh, s- Oh, and as soon as we got the French got rid of religion, uh, as they thought in, in France after their revolution, uh, in which in the first secular state they beheaded 17,000 men, women, and children in public. Uh, it, it, so it didn't seem as though secularism was going to be tremendously benign. But as soon as they, they created a new religion, the nation. And uh, the nation, uh, Lord Acton pointed out, and here we come to miniaturization, Lord Acton in the late 19th century, a British historian, said that the new nation state, um, the, the culture, the emphasis on culture, ethnicity, and language in the nation state would make it very pe- difficult for people who did not fit the national profile. And with chilling accuracy, he said that in some cases they could be enslaved or even exterminated. And we've seen that. And it's what we've been thinking of, and it's what we dread. So don't let's be triumphant about either religion or secularism. The, we, we are meaning-seeking creatures. We try and discover meaning. And we also miniaturize, uh, especially as the world gets more complex perhaps the more min- we, we need to miniaturize psychologically. But let's beware of that. Mr. Minister, briefly, please. If we are going to have another, another meeting, another conference on we Islamophobia, will. We will. 
So I think we have to talk about uh, securitization of Islam as well, because uh, we complained about politicization of Islam. Well, we have been discussing this issue uh, almost one century, but now, unfortunately, Islam itself has become a topic of an issue of securitization. So what is, what are we going to do with religion? Or what are we going to Islam in the West? Or what are we going to do with Islam in European countries? I, as, as you said, I was, for, for the time being, I was a minister of uh, some parts of foreign affairs. So I attended more than 10 meetings whose subjects were Islam and security in Europe. Mm -hmm. So Islamophobia really contributed greatly not only to the Islamization of, to the politicization of Islam, of which we are always complaining, but now the problem has come to the point of securitization of Islam, which, which is very extremely important. We have to deal with it. Full stop. Senator. Three points. One is Muslim world, I just want to refer back to some other questions, does not see itself necessarily as the Muslim world, as in, when we meet each other, he's Iranian, I'm Iraqi. Oh, yes. We fought with each other. We have a lot of hatred towards each other, but then now we are friendly. We don't see ourselves as all Muslims thus united. There is no such a thing. We see ourselves in our nationalities or point of different point of references. So the Muslim world does not see itself as it's been referred to. That's one thing. And as it does not experience itself in that way. We love each other. We hate each other. We, we, have, we annoy each other, all of that. Second. Maybe going back to the French, I mean, the, the crusade and the Spanish occupation is too long, but the Gulf Wars and the Syrian war indeed does have an impact on Islamophobia. So yes, politics is having an impact on what's happening. Maybe not that historical politics, but the current one. When you, you know, when we look at Iraq, it is destroyed right now. It is utterly destroyed. And you cannot separate that destruction and America and the Western role in that destruction from the anger and the hurt and the pain that is feeding into Islamophobia or that discussion and that tension. So it is indeed interrelated, but I would say, I would argue and push for more immediate politics of what's happening right now rather than historical one. And this is. And I do think there is a, um, this whole, it, we all need to reflect on ourselves. The Western world needs to reflect back to Karen's point about its own meaning of freedom and its own meaning of liberty and its own meaning of all of that because these, these values are being threatened right now by the West, within the West. And I do believe Muslim world is, it does need to be forced to, no, not forced, does need to reflect on itself as well and its point of identity and thus to the point of the role of secularism versus religion versus all of these things. There does need to be a, a self-reflection in how do we come out of it. Um, it is a, a point of contention, tension right now and we are all part of this co-creation of it. What's going to happen, I don't know. I'm going to leave Bali. it to Bali. I I would say taking away from this conversation, I would say uh, you know, Islamophobia is not just about religious dialogue or historical understanding. It's a problem of identity. Yes. And uh, it is a problem uh, for Muslims in the, living in the West. Uh, you know, I, I have children growing up here, and I do worry about their future. I didn't used to, but I do worry about uh, uh, their future. It's a problem for this community. It's a problem 
that is partly in their hand and partly uh, has, been, has been basically landed on them in recent times. It is also a problem for the United States and European countries because, because within our lifetime, uh, before very long, Islamophobia can change the political map of Europe as we know it. And, 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 and even in this country, it can play a very important force in terms of the kind of politics that, that will dominate. And, and, and there's no easy solutions to it, largely because it is not just about religion and, and history. It's not just about understanding. It, it really is a bigger political problem. Uh, and in some ways, um, I think we're at a point where you know, these kinds of identity politics uh, is a problem for everybody. Uh, it's, it's, and, and, and it requires a much, much bigger, much bigger uh, solutions going forward. So if I were to say that, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, maybe particularly after last night, you can think that there's an opportunity January 20th for the U.S. to turn a page. And I think uh, having a serious conversation about, uh, you know, the direction of identity politics in America, which we're a part of it, is very important uh, as, as we True. go forward. And we all have essentially a responsibility to, to contribute to that. True. Thank you. Vuslat, final word. Um, many things have been told about Islamophobia and many different aspects of Islamophobia. But in the end, it's also a reflection of the polarization in the society, polarization and radicalization, and being intolerant to the other. So we have to talk about plurality when we talk about Islamophobia as well. There is a comment Wiley made about uh, the failure of secularism, um, which I would love to have discussed for a longer time because I really do think that language is important and secularism for me is the division of state and, uh, and religion. It's not, uh, it's not attacking the Burkinis, that's pluralism. That's not wanting your cultural, um, the, your culturally uh, not uh, dislike be live with you. So it's about coexistence. Uh, but when we come to uh, Islamophobia, I think we should also be thinking about how this radicalism is going to come to a stage where we can really talk about issues. Otherwise, it's very difficult. Today, it's Islamophobia, but there are many phobias within the cultures. Right. Yeah. So um, th thank you. Before I ask you to applaud uh, our panelists, uh, and this was such a rich conversation, and we know we're just scratching the surface of something we're going to have to talk about for some time, uh, you're going to applaud them. We're going to move uh, stage right. We're then going to pull down a screen for a very th a three-minute sneak, sneak preview of a video we've been preparing here as part of our effort to debunk uh, Islamophobia in the United States. Uh, you have the hashtag, which is Beyond Islamophobia. This is not going to be distributed yet broadly, uh, except for the television cameras that are at the back. Uh, and, uh, and, and we're still going to make some edits and changes to this, so we'd actually take your advice, make this an interactive conversation, both about the panel, what you've heard today, but also any additional ideas you would have for this uh, three-minute video of things we ought to be saying about, uh, about Muslims in America and the world. So a round of applause for our uh, panelists and for all of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at atlanticcouncil.org. 
and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.